Welcome back to Breakthrough, Waking Up to the Real You. I am your host, Alejandra Vivanco. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today, we're going to be talking about chapter 8 and 9. Very interesting story. Every time I tell myself, you know what, let me take a break and uh, I'll I'll pick the, this book, you know, pick it up tomorrow and just keep going. It pulls me back again and, you know, I read and read and read. It's, it's a very good read, very interesting. Uh, there's a lot of information, but also some really good storytelling. So I wasn't planning on doing an episode today. I was planning to rest, but... You know, it's just so fascinating. So I'm here again, and I'm going to talk about um, what are, what's the lesson when you don't reconcile your past before moving ahead, and what's the lesson when you engage in self-destructive behavior. And I must say that there is a lot that comes to my mind when I read the book because it's just when you have an experience like a Yanla, you can, you know, throw the dice and say, maybe she's not going to make it. Maybe it's just lost because we think of people who have gone through, through through certain things that they're just lost, that it doesn't matter, you know, we, we give up hope on them. And the truth of the matter is that we can all make that choice to change. I actually made a mistake. It's chapter 9 and 10. So it's uh, what's the lesson when you engage in self-destructive behavior and what's the lesson when you are a motherless child raising children. So... I don't know if you, you've ever heard that before, but sometimes we lose hope um, in other people because they are not meeting our, our requirements or they are not up to par or we don't see the progress and we just write them off in our lives because it's just easier. We don't want to be emotionally invested sometimes in certain situations or stories or people and we just let it go. Now, it doesn't mean that you stay and, you know, you try to save people. That's not your job. But definitely, Iyanla's story, Rhonda Harris's story, gives you a perspective where you believe that anything and everything is possible. And every time you come, you, you know, and you are just living your life, you think everything is going left. And there's one quote-unquote, bad thing after the other, you you can really lose hope. And you never get to see the blessing in the challenge, or let me reward it if you have an issue with the word blessing. You never see the opportunity in the challenge in what's really going on. Because when we think about life and when we think about life situations, as Eckhart Tolle says, we never see them from another perspective. We're always stuck in our opinion and judgment of whatever happened, regardless of what happened. If, you know, I, I think that having talked about a new earth and the power of now specifically really helps understanding a endless story from a, a different perspective point of view with that same connection with the 
the pain that some of us can still have alive, you know, in our in our pain bodies or the pain that's in our emotional being. So when you really think about it, when the tower moment happens, this is a shout out to the people that love tarot cards. The tower moment is uh, the representation of a, a big event is going to happen to help you. If something is not standing on a good, solid foundation, every single thing that happens that challenges that is going to feel like everything is falling apart. And us, instead of looking at the foundation, we focus on the event. And that's when we begin to blame other people for what happens to us. You know, um, a couple of hours ago, I was uh, reading the news and I, I don't read anything that's political or religion, but I do like pop culture. And I was reading that somebody had had an affair and their relationship was over. It's not about only the affair per se, because if you, the relationship is over and there was an affair and it was that easy and you are involved with other people that quickly and you have had a relationship for so long, anybody focusing on the other person, the one outside the relationship, it's just not, it's trying to escape the things that are what's really happening. Or when somebody starts a rumor on your relationship and it just falls apart, the relationship wasn't strong enough to begin with. Because when you know your truth, when you know the truth, when you trust the other person, it doesn't matter what happens outside of that. Because you know the truth. The people that are the loudest are the most insecure. And the people that are constantly in conflict for what's being told are the ones that they don't know who they are. And it doesn't matter what people think. It matters what is. So sometimes when these things happen, conflict, challenges outside of ourselves, they are challenging our beliefs. They are challenging our foundation. And if it's a strong foundation, it doesn't matter. And that's the point where, where we all should get eventually where whatever happens outside of us really doesn't have a, a big emotional impact because our foundation is not broken. It's strong. And we stand on it firmly and we speak our truth constantly and we're honest. It is when we begin to lie to ourselves and others, it is when we begin the dishonesty game, that's when things get shaky. And so we become defensive or we go on the, uh, we go and be, we are aggressive because we want to protect ourselves. We don't want people to see the lie. So if you had the opportunity to give your younger self a name and make it a character, how would you tell your story? You know, if you were uh, the narrator of the story of and you give your younger self a name, how would it look? How would it sound? H how would it be? It's a very interesting 
um, question that I think that it's a great exercise for everybody. And uh, I'm going to help you try to frame it by reading a passage from chapter 9 of the book. Again, this is Yesterday I Cried by the wonderful, amazing Ian Lavanzant. So here we go. I could see how, how and why Rhonda thought she was a victim. I could see how she ran from one place to another, trying to get away from someplace else where she had been victimized. I could see why she thought she was ugly, unlovable, destined to hurt and be hurt forever. I felt sad for her. I was not as sad about what had happened to her as I was about the fact that she could not see what was happening. I was sad that she could not see her pattern and that there was no one available to point it out to her. She was embroiled in a destructive pattern of being hurt and moving on without healing the hurt, only to find herself in a situation in which she would be hurt again. I could see clearly that Rhonda was living her own interpretation of what she had been taught by grandma and daddy. It was a pattern that had emerged in her childhood. And this is what we've been talking about, right? Patterns. So that's how she, Iyanla, she's, she's hiking after the jacuzzi was not working. She felt stuck. She, when we were talking about the, the rape, the moment that happened in which she was telling and feeling the hurt and all that, she left her house. She goes hiking because she lives in the woods. And, you know, as she is kind of like a moving meditation as she's enjoying that and getting clear on what what's happening with Rhonda she says this which I think it's such an important piece of the puzzle for all of us how would we tell our story if we were someone else remember this is Iyanla telling Rhonda's story but they are the same person so how would you tell your own story in this in th take this as a as a reference Rhonda was wounded she was in fear she felt unlovable she felt ugly she was running away constantly So it, that was not something Rhonda was telling herself but that's something that Iyanla discovered over time And so when we begin to get clear about our story, not in a first-person um, way only. It's not about you saying, "Oh, this happened to me," and that, and that. Not about not in, uh, from the victim perspective. Let's talk about the frame of reference and also the observation of the whole thing. Because in order for us to heal, we need to also be responsible for our actions and understand that we were also a participant in the story, even though it felt ugly, sad, it was still something that we perpetuated. Again, it doesn't mean we're a bad person. It doesn't mean that, you know, we deserved what happened. It just means that we were in that mindset and we only knew hurt. So we hurt ourselves engaged in hurt and hurt other people. So 
by this by this at this point Rhonda is pregnant again she's now with John who is a guy he, uh, he, she meets when they're working together at a at a, a kind of like a rehab center and he is a former drug addict and um he is abusive to her she is in an abusive relationship with the I don't think they got married it's just you know they they live together and she becomes pregnant with her child with his child and remember that this is even though this is the third pregnancy no this is the fourth pregnancy but this is the third child because the first child she had when she was 13 um, the child passed away so I am no stranger to relationships where you are um, abused physically. And one thing that I can attest to, and I know this has been repeated for the longest, is that a man or a woman who is willing to put their hands on you will do it again. There's a hundred percent. And now let's break it down a little bit. It's not about the act only of putting their hands on you. It's about understanding that unless that person takes responsibility and stop making empty promises of not doing it again and really actually seeks the help the person needs to change the behavior, unless they do that, you need to leave the situation. We're going to talk about it more, but nobody under any circumstances should touch you in any way that's violent or that you, are, you haven't consented to, period. So there are some people, some abusers that that's the way they live. And they engage in uh, physical abuse without really thinking about it. And women who just accept that in, in, in hopes that they will change. There's other abusers that they will hit you and they will feel sorry and they will beg and they will cry. And they will promise they would never do it again. And they'll, they will gaslight you and tell you that it's your fault because you made them mad. And if you come from a childhood where everything was your fault or you are not worthy, you are not valuable, or you are people-pleasing, you will believe that bullshit. That, it, oh, it was my fault because I shouldn't have done that because I knew how he would get. You need to get out of the situation. Period. Point blank. You need to get out of the situation. There is no way. I don't care how you want to color it. I don't care how you want to flip the camera and make the shot. You are never going to convince anybody, not even yourself, that it, it is your fault for somebody else to put their hands on you. There is no way. I'm trying to think, you know, trying to, to be the devil's advocate. I can't. There is absolutely nothing nothing that warrants somebody putting their hands on you and then blaming you or you having to walk on eggshells and then hoping that today you won't get hit or you 
living, you, you're putting yourself in a situation when you're in constant fear and you're living with the threat. There is no way to justify that because you're putting yourself in danger and you're giving somebody else who's not willing or able the responsibility to change. You're putting your hopes of safety onto someone else that they haven't given you any clue whatsoever. I'm not talking about words. I'm talking about actions, behavior, that they're willing or able to change. That doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means that they are wounded and they're, they are willing and able to wound and hurt other people just because they are hurt. And if you are in that situation, whether that's verbally, whether that's physically, whether that's sexually, emotionally, if you are in an abusive situation, I just want you to think of this. Think of yourself or grab a picture of you when you were a baby or younger and you look in the eyes of that child, of that picture or in your mind and tell them they deserve that. And let's see what, what happens in you. Because sometimes we're willing to protect other people, but never ourselves. So if you look at the child, you would see the child connect with the child, but also you will know that's you. So get clear on that. So she says that one of the few times, obviously, that John hit her, he says that she made him mad and that's why he reacted. So he would tell her it's your fault. So he absolutely has no agency in his life. Iyanla has so much power over him. Well, Rhonda has so much power over him that he just reacts to the world. Unfortunately for Rhonda, she had learned that, you know, on the outside, like the, the, the carcass of the relationship was that the, here was this man who had accepted me with the kids that are not his and giving and created a home with me. So again, the unworthiness of me and the need to have a family and somebody to love me and the children to have a father, all of that comes into play on why women stay with these type of men. And she says something that is very true with a lot of women who are um, living with danger. It says, only a man who loves you gives you his money, which is something he learned. she learned from her dad. And she, she, she has been exposed to that. So she knows that world pretty well. So do you see how we find many ways to justify behaviors when we believe we love someone? So she says that one night when she was already pregnant, eight months Somehow John believed that she was messing around. So when she got pregnant, John changed even to, to the worst because he really believed that maybe that wasn't his baby or that she was messing around with someone else. And so he became even more controlling. 
And one night, eight months pregnant, he beats her really like how her daddy did on Halloween night. The children saw it. Remember, she has two kids now. And her face was bruised and battered, and it was just horrible. And the children would cry looking at her. And even with all of that, even with all of that, Rhonda got into bed that night and had sex with him. Her behavior is showing how she felt about herself and how, how she operated from those wounds. Of course, on the surface, you're like, oh, my God. But underneath, there's an understanding of why people behave and do the way they behave and, and do whatever they do. And until you do not touch that within you, you know, your wounds and you get to the bottom of things, you cannot have compassion for someone else. You only have judgment. And you will place yourself on a hierarchy where you are higher than everybody else that do these things because you don't have compassion. You don't, you have not practiced and exercised compassion with yourself. That's why, yes, it's tough to hear the story, but there's a deeper understanding coming from me that I know where she's coming from. Not only because I've been in relationships where I've been abused or I grew up in an abusive home, I know where she comes from. I know how rotten and wretched you have to be deep in your spirit that you allow people to just do whatever in order to feel and be loved. And obviously it's questionable, the definition of love, but you believe that you, you need to belong somewhere and to someone to feel safe and protected. So after that, he disappears for a couple of days and then he buys her a washing machine and everything, you know, everything gets better again. And obviously she didn't fight back because she believed that you, you cannot hit someone that loves you. So everybody knew what was happening. Her baby daddy, I think it was her baby daddy, um, her, her baby daddy's um, mother was living next to them and they knew what was happening to Rhonda. They could hear her scream. They could hear things falling. They could hear the beatings. But something that she says, which is, which is very true with a lot of women. If you, if you have spoken to women or read about women or seen documentaries about women who are in violent relationships, is that even though everybody can kind of understand and offer you some conversation and feel sorry for you, they will never offer you a place to stay so that you can get out of the situation. So these women believe they cannot do it. They cannot go anywhere. They have nobody that can help them or nobody is willing to help them. And again, not only that, but Rhonda has two kids and she is pregnant again. And this is not for us to see her as the victim. It's just to understand the circumstances. So... Once uh, the third baby is born, John tells her that he's going to get a new apartment 
and they're gonna move there and you know it's he 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 kind of got a little bit more chill uh, the beating stopped a little bit and there was hope again so you you go through a cycle in a violent relationship where there's lows lows that are very low and there then there comes the hope of something getting better so you always hold on to hope because things will eventually change so we believe and Unfortunately, he lied to her and there was no apartment. And the, the day that she was supposed to move, John was not there. Um, she had packed everything in the apartment. She had left the kids with Nat, who is her, um, her father's wife, who she considers to be her mother, but it's, she's not her, the mother. And... Um, it was night time, and she didn't know the moving company, uh, the name. The there was no the telephone didn't work, and um, she realized that it was all a lie. She called the landlord, the the landlord that was supposed to be giving them the apartment, and she he said that John never put any money down, so the apartment now has gone to somebody else. So she came into this, it, it's a buildup. And she calls Nat, the kids come home, she puts them to bed, she opens a box that says bathroom, and she attempts suicide again. And this time they, they take her to, um, a, a, it's the psychiatric ward of Brookdale Hospital. She couldn't handle anyone. How, how, how much pain can you handle? That's a good question to ask yourself. Because when things, and you, you're going to know a little bit, you're kind of like your pain meter. When things get tough, how long does it take for you to lose it or to go to those thoughts of it's over, to be fatalistic, how long does it take you to get there or to escape? That's how you know how much pain you're in. When you begin to see that the min a minor inconvenience, it's like the world is falling apart. And you already know by now that it's not about the thing that happened. It's about what you have been carrying for so long that gets so heavy. And if you exercise or uh, lift weights or do planks, you know that you can hold the plank for a minute and it feels like five hours if you have not been training, if your upper body is not strong, if your core is not tight, if you have not get, gotten used to your own weight. You can grab a five-pound weight, just grab it, say, extend your arm forward, grab it, and see how long it takes before you feel like it's 100 pounds. That's the pain we're carrying. And we never turn back to ourselves because nobody told us that if something outside of us happens, we need to bring the attention back and say, what's really going on? So let me here read a passage from this chapter. Acceptance or rejection of how you are treated by others is a function of how you feel about yourself. When you're wounded, you bleed. It is the bleeding that makes you feel bad. The way in which the wounds are inflicted determines how long and how badly you bleed. 
So superficial wounds um, are, are something that we all have, but in Rhonda's case, and most of us, she had deep penetrating gashes that had never healed and they continued to bleed. And she says here, she had no idea that the only way to heal her wounds was to acknowledge them. And that's what we have been talking about. You know, when I say tell the truth and all the good stuff that we've been talking about so far. So, so she sees her going to the psychiatric ward as a blessing. Because remember, she was always going, 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 doing, 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 fixing, fixing, fixing. There was no time. So when everything came to a halt, finally she was able to snap out of everything that was happening around her and stop fighting it. And that's what Eckhart Tolle says about acceptance. And she was able to look inside and really call herself out and understand what was really going on with her because this is not the life she wanted to live. And she knew that. So... Before I go into chapter 10, I want to share this. Every chapter has like small passages or quotes from books. And I want to share this one with you because I thought it was really good. This is again for from A Course in Miracles. And it says, remember this. Every decision you make stems from what you think you are and represents the value that you put upon yourself. Let's go again. One more time, one more time. Because I, I like it. Sometimes it's just the first one and then let me let me really take it in. Again, remember this. Chapter 10, Yesterday I Cried, from A Course in Miracles, a uh, passage from A Course in Miracles. Remember this. Every decision you make stems from what you think you are and represents the value that you put upon yourself. I hope that this small passage quote helps you stop perpetuating the complaining victim mentality that we all have. I'll leave it there because you can um, you can understand hopefully what, what what I'm saying from this. So every decision we are making represents the value you have of yourself, how you see yourself. So instead of complaining about what's going on, ask yourself, what can you do to either change, accept, or leave the situation? And we've talked about that in The Power of Now, so you can um, go back and listen to that. So once she's in the psychiatric... God... It's hard to English right now. Um, what Once she, she's inside the mental institution, um, the doctor comes in after, um, you know, they heavily medicated in the be her in the beginning because, you know, they wanted to kind of like keep her, quote unquote, stable. But once she was out of that, the, that medicine or the, the drugs that they were giving her, the doctor came in and he wanted to know, you know, what if she was aware where she was and also, you know, kind of like see what the situation was. Is this a crazy woman or is this just somebody who's on the brink? Is she going to commit suicide? If we like what's really going on? So she he asks her, um, 
you know, what, what's happened, what got her to that point. And in her long answer, there's a really, really good um, passage. Here it is. Babies cry when their mothers die and when their fathers leave them. They cry when you lock them in closets and when you beat them. A baby will cry when it believes that you love all the other babies more than you love them. And if you do something mean to a baby but tell it not to cry, then the baby will end up in a mental institution. Oh, boy. And then she says that she started to cry and told the doctor that she was ugly and fat and that she ate too much all the time. So she's really beginning to be sincere about what's really going on. Obviously, the doctor is a strange person, and he's not hes not giving her, you know, the um, creepy vibes or that she cannot trust him fully or that she's in, under a threat or in danger. So... She just, it's so tired of fighting back the truth that she finally just, it comes out this way. And um, the beautiful thing about it is that she finally acknowledges what's happening. It comes out of her mouth. She's not only thinking it, but she's saying it out loud, which helps when we have to deal with our thoughts. So it's not that she had never thought about it. It's just, it's just that she had never acknowledged that that's what's happening. That was the truth. So during this time, she makes a lot of discoveries of herself. And she also begins to pen letters to her children and, you know, asking for forgiveness for not being the mother they needed. Because, again, it's not only Iyanla being in a violent situation. She's exposing her kids to violent men in hopes that they have a family. So that is something that I have recommended as well. You know, if you are not someone who is able to talk, talk it out, say it out loud, you can uh, write letters and you don't have to give it to them. You can then burn them. It's kind of like a ritual, that a, a freedom ritual, a liberating ritual where you write letters to the people that you you're still have some issues with, like some pending stuff and you write the letter and really tell them what really hurt you and why you hurt them too and you can ask for forgiveness or you can say whatever it comes from the really really deep hidden part of you of your spirit that's that feels broken and then you can burn it it's not about communicated to them per se remember that when we heal we don't have to go back and tell people off and get into fights it's about us expressing ourselves and expressing our pain in hopes that it purges a little bit what's the the, the tears can purge the pain and we can go through that process on our own so i highly recommend that if you're someone who would rather write and then also you can write a letter to your younger self and ask for forgiveness and a letter to your future self and really state clearly what you really want. And it's not about achievement of things. It's just about your state of being in the future. This is just an exercise. So here Yanla says, often we fear solitude. 
We mistake it for loneliness and attempt to fill the emptiness, the silence with activity and noise and people. And that's why once I got to living in the suburbs or even when I was I started the journey in 2020 and I started the podcast I really loved being at home whether that was my apartment or now my home I realized that I don't want I didn't want to go out when I was younger I had to go out I needed to leave the the place that I felt like I was under a threat that I had to survive constantly and walk on eggshells and so Going out, it wasn't that I was, you know, hanging out with people at a library. People wanted to drink and party and, you know, okay, fine. I'll exchange, you know, potentially being told how ugly and fat I am to, you know, okay, y'all drink, drink it up. And, you know, I'll, I'll be here until two, three in the morning and then I can just come home and everybody's sleeping and then I can go to sleep. But now... It's like I don't want to go anywhere because I don't have anywhere that I were, that I would like to be other than home. I'm not restless. It doesn't mean that you can't if you go out, you are escaping something. That's something that you have to figure out on your own. I'm just telling you my experience, but I just don't like going out unless I have to do grocery shopping or something specific or hiking. I love hiking, but something specific that's going to add to my life, I don't want to do it. I don't want to be bothered. And I, it's, I'm glad because I don't have any friends. <laughs> All of my friends are in different countries. So I just like being home. And I, I think that a part of me is enjoying the experience that I never had growing up. So I'm giving my inner child, my inner teen, my inner young woman the chance to just be in a place and feel safe, you know, and enjoy it. Oh my God, it's just, it's just amazing how life can change. I never thought I would be here. I never thought I would be here talking, first of all, uh, in a recording, in a, recording booth that I made myself but I never thought that I would be in a place where I just don't want to go anywhere I just don't want to do anything I just want to be here I want to read a book and I want to make an episode and then I want to clean the house and maybe I want to cook I don't have to worry about oh my god I have to be an actress oh my god I need to be auditioning I need to be doing something why am I it's over it's over it's just that happiness, that joy inside of me that there is no way for me to express it other than how I'm doing it right now. From the bottom of my heart, there's no other place I would rather be than home. I feel safe, I am happy, and I enjoy it. And if tomorrow it changes, it changes. But today, this moment is all there is. Therefore, I am going to be 100% present in this moment and take it day by day. And that is a realization that I've never had. And so sometimes people from my country ask me, hey, when are you coming? Never, ever, ever, ever. There is no reason whatsoever that I should be like, oh yeah, let me travel 
15, 16 hours to a place I don't want to be in, to see people that I don't care to see. For what? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> There's nothing there for me. It's over. It's kind of like saying, hey, do you want to see your ex? No. Why would I want to see that those people? Like, it's over. Like, what, 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 am I, what are we doing here? What am I getting from this? I'm not getting anything. Oh, they would like to talk to you because they want to apologize. Well, you know, go to church, figure it out. I don't know. Scream to the skies. You're not getting attention from me. You're not getting my energy. You're not getting anything from me. There's no other place I'd rather be than this moment. And I think that is just a great, great realization in life. Because I realize now that I was escaping constantly, trying to get from place to place and trying to find a, a safe place and then a, a busy place and then a place where I should belong. I should always have a group of people that I can meet every weekend like everybody does. No, I don't. But I thought that and it's exhausting. Man, it's exhausting to have to try and do something and be something you're not. But it's even harder when you don't acknowledge the fact that you are just creating a false you and trying to check boxes that you didn't even want to check. I don't give a fuck. And that is so liberating. And it should be for everybody to experience. Oh my God, you don't want to come and visit, you know, let's go meet places in Europe. Ugh, show me a picture. Like, I don't care. My energy is so sacred. I take care of myself so much that I don't feel like I'm missing out on, you know, people, there's people that I know that like to travel a lot. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything, anything. There's nothing that's going to give me what I am giving myself in this moment. And it's the simple things, guys. It's just the simple things. It's just waking up and that's it. And I hope that one day, if you're not there already, one day you can just enjoy the moment without it having to be, you know, fancy and luxurious or it has to you have to drop a pin and tell people that you are somewhere fancy or somewhere far away or you're just having so much fun and oh my god, we're so in love and all this extra shit that we do because we are trying to convince ourselves that we're important somehow. It doesn't mean that you don't get to have fun. But I just want you to know where that's really coming from. Like actually, truly, really where that's coming from. Instead of it just being dismissed as, oh my God, I like to have fun because I'm a party boy. I'm a party girl. Okay. If that's what you tell yourself and that's the truth, it what I'm saying right now shouldn't really matter. Because I'm not calling you out. Because you know your truth, as I know mine. Let's continue. So, Iyanla writes, She remembered that the adults in her life who had taught her to be afraid. Afraid of them and afraid of what they could do to her. She wrote about the pain of what they had and had not done. She remembered all the ways they had hurt her body and her feelings. She wrote it all down. 
Then she wrote about the things they said and the lies they had told to her, on her, and about her. She remembered how she had trusted them to take care of her and protect her. She wrote about how they had not done that. She decided that she could, not, she could no longer trust people. People, she wrote, do not care about you. She also decided that she was not going to be like any of the adults who raised her. She wrote that down too. And then she wrote about herself and how she wanted to be. So that's the exercise I was talking about. And in writing or speaking, we begin to acknowledge what's really going on inside ourselves and what really happened in, in our younger years, in our experience. So she says, Rhonda wanted very badly to be a person and not a punching bag. If you do the things people think you should do, the way they think you should do them, they mistakenly believe that you're okay. Rhonda really wanted to matter to somebody. It's such powerful statements. And she was not fighting being in that mental institution. She was just, you know what? I need a fucking break. And I'm glad she acknowledged that because, again, what the optics of it is, oh, my God, she went crazy. The reality is she took it as an opportunity to take a breath, which is something that Ian Lavanzant always says. Take a breath. And when something is happening within you and you don't want to communicate it or don't know how to communicate it or are unwilling to do so, she says that your breath is not flowing. So there's something happening. Are you breathing from, from the, you know, from the chest? Or are you really doing the deep breaths that are going to bring you back into this moment? Remember, when you meditate, it's all about the breath. Or even when you don't meditate, if you f just focus on one conscious breath, as Eckhart Tolle says, you're being brought back into the moment because you don't make breath happens. Your breathing happens, period. So you focusing on that, you have no control over it, but to just follow it. And that's what kind of snaps you out of the whatever moment you find yourself. She says she felt she was hideous and ugly and dirty. She had to figure out, figure out a way to get whole and clean and beautiful. So she says, how can you be beautiful when you're angry and confused and afraid? Rhonda admitted that she was afraid of what her anger, confusion, and fear would do to her children. There is little you can do when you feel that no one loves you or cares about you. It renders you incapable when you believe that you do not matter. You may be tempted to stop even trying to do better. So the, the blessing here to her, for her, is that her children were a big reason why she wanted to get better, clear, and save them. It was no longer about creating the perfect family and having a husband that accepted her because her beliefs were that she was ugly, she was broken, and all the stuff that we have been talking about. Now her focus was, I need to do this for my kids. And so the, the husband, the man, goes to another, to the background, all the way out all the way over there and then she gets clear about one thing and she wants her children not to experience anymore what she experienced when she was growing up so pain violence 
And when she acknowledges that, the, the intention changes. And now she's, she's, she's beginning to see beyond her own needs as, a, as, you know, the inner child needs of wanting this idea of a family because it's not working out. So she's not telling herself, I can be a single mom and that's going to be a family. What she's saying is that my children do not deserve this and I need to be to, to be present, whole and beautiful and clean and all the stuff that she talks about for them as well. And that's how she's going to show up. So after, I think, six months or six weeks, I think it's sorry, six weeks, she uh, she is she's told she's free to go. She's good. And um, during this time, obviously, she learns about the, the power of prayer. And that's something that she learned for her from her grandma. But again, if you have heard the story from the beginning, her grandma was a different energy. Though prayer was very powerful to her grandma, now Iyanla has taken that and she has internalized that prayer is really powerful. And that's when she becomes, she, she begins to be in touch with her spiritual side. And that's what's beautiful about her, that there's something more that goes beyond the teachings. And she really leans on God and her definition of God may be different of yours, but she leans on something bigger and more powerful than her, if that works for you. So she goes to her old apartment and her, uh, I think it's her ex-husband, but Gary, one of the baby daddies, had paid the apartment, so her, her things were still there. The dog was there. The dog had not been fed for a while. And she hears a voice in her head that says, feed the dog and go to your your in-laws, to, to the in-laws' house, you know, the the abusive uh, boyfriend, uh, the mom, go to her house and ask for your, your kid because the other two kids were okay, but she was trying to get the baby. And she follows and then... She goes to the the house of the mother, and the mother thinks she's a crazy woman. But Iyanla, her energy had shifted. She became she 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 was clear on what she wanted. She was centered, not afraid anymore, and she was standing in her own powerful truth. And I think this is where she shifts, and she asks for the baby. She's not moving from the house. She stays there. There's no conflict whatsoever. John comes home with the baby and he does this whole dance of being uh, you know loud and all that he didn't want to give her the baby she just wanted to hold the baby in her arms because it's her baby after all and you know they were calling her all types of crazy and john how already has a already has a girlfriend and uh, iyanla says that for the first time ever she sees john not as this six foot two man who is you know who, who, who is powerful and you should be afraid of him. She sees just a child that it's not getting his way, which is a very powerful, powerful discovery for her because now her perspective has, has shifted and it's no longer the man that she wanted to be with. It was just that the emotion, the emotional attachment had left the building. And so when he he wanted to be violent towards her, Iyanla says, Rhonda didn't move. She was praying. Ye though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I shall fear no evil. Oh, 
gives me goosebumps because that's something that she talks about with Oprah during Super Soul Conversations. If you if you want to hear Yanla talk, please go ahead and um, go to YouTube, Yanla Van Zandt, Super Soul Conversations. And there's, uh, there's a podcast. You can listen to the whole episodes on the podcast of uh, Super Soul Conversations with Oprah, or you can go and just watch the clips on YouTube. <sighs> Such a powerful thing. So in Yanla's in case, in Rhonda's case, she's leaning, um, she, she's leaning on her, she's leaning on her spirituality, something that her grandma taught her to some extent. It was more of a religion thing, but there was always this idea that there was something more powerful than you and you should always lean into that. And in the Yanla is taking that and doing it in a different way, but it's the same the same foundation. So there was so, she trusted the voice so much that kept telling her, just breathe, stay still, trust, all of that to the point that she got the baby in her arms and, you know, John was tired of fighting with himself and that's all she needed. And... It's just... very powerful to understand that it doesn't have to be this way anymore. And how you show up for yourself is very important because that's how you're going to show up for others. So that's why I say the first person in your life is you. And everybody else comes second. Not because they matter less, but because it's in how you're showing up and giving yourself time and space and energy to heal, to grow, to evolve. That's what you're giving everybody else. I remember, if your cup is empty, what are you giving other people? If you're not loving yourself, how are you loving everybody else? What is love? That's a good song. Remember, what is love? Don't hurt me. So if you don't give yourself, if you're not able or willing to give yourself what you're asking of the world or other people, then you're setting yourself up for failure and heartache. You have to understand that you are whole and complete. And you're enough. Because when you really believe and internalize that, you show up whole and complete. And then you see the red flags right away. And you don't let people into your home. You know, you don't let the, the threat come into the house. And if you do, you, you, you assess the threat and you let it go. But only if you're whole and complete or in the process of becoming whole and complete or understanding that you're already everything you need. You already have everything you need. It's only a matter of you to see it, not for me to see it. So when you get to that point, the rest, cheesecake and cupcakes. 
So that's Yesterday I Cried by Ian Lavanzant, chapter 9 and 10. We are all we are halfway there, if I'm not mistaken. It's 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 been a ride. I'm combining episodes because obviously, you know, one episode and the other one cannot really go well together. So we still have we're on chapter 10 and there's 19 episodes. So we're going to keep on talking about this. Remember, if you want to get the book, go ahead and get it on Amazon. There's also audiobooks. If you do better with audiobooks, go ahead and do it. Remember, I'm not sponsored. Nobody's paying me anything. I'm doing this because I really do like these books. And I do believe that um, they, they helped me when I needed it the most. And I believe that people can find these messages helpful. And when it's time... You're just going to find your way home, back to your true self. And with that, I say till next time. Bye.